so much, Jordan. Uh, even John doesn't have to juggle announcements giving and then scripture reading, so thanks for all that. That was great. Uh, well, a warm welcome to you. If you're new, joining us for the first time, uh, my name is Steve. Really glad you're here, as Jordan said. And wherever you're at on your spiritual journey, if you don't count yourself a Christian at all, or if you've been in church for a long time, we're thrilled that you're with us. And uh, so I just returned from Kenya on a missions trip. It was incredible. And so, uh, church, I hope in the coming weeks to get to recap uh, with you guys on that because it was awesome. Uh, but now is the time for God's Word. And so this is the time in the service since we've spent the first half expressing ourselves to God through song. Now is the time where God gets to communicate himself to us through his word. And so the role of any preacher here is not for us to get up here and give our two cents or a TED talk on life, but the job of the preacher is to uh, clarify and amplify what God is already saying in, in his word. And so what we're doing as a church this year is we're going through Matthew's gospel, which was one of the earliest biographies of Jesus' life. And now we're at the part in the narrative where we're zeroing in on this question of who is Jesus and more specifically, what did he come to do? And I was thinking about this this week because uh, this past week I got dinner with a couple and they're not Christians. And so I was just talking with them and they've been dating for a long time. And I asked a question to the effect of, you know, so what is it that first drew you guys to each other? And, you know, you've been doing life together for a while. So like, what is it that makes you guys want to continue to do life together. And the woman goes first, and, you know, she's like, let's just call them uh, Brad and Olivia. And she's like, well, I like this about Brad, and this about Brad, and this about Brad. And then she smiles, and she says, you know, when I first saw him, I laughed and thought he was really funny because he was wearing this shirt, and and then she just stops talking, and her face goes there, and she goes, never mind. So, of course, I'm like, well, what? You know, what was on his shirt? She goes, well, when I first saw him, you know, so he, uh, he works for um, uh, Electronic Arts, I, I think is the name of the company, which designed the game The Sims, if you guys have played that. She said, so he, he helped develop the game The Sims, and so he was wearing a shirt with Jesus' picture on it, and it said, Jesus saves you from your Sims. But now I've learned you're a pastor, and so suddenly this doesn't seem very funny anymore. <laughs> so I try to awkwardly diffuse the tension. Jury's still out on if I actually diffuse the tension. But it, it got me thinking, you know, despite the fact that Jesus is, I mean, bar none, the most influential person to ever live, there's so many opinions on what did he come to do, right? And so for some, he is a legend. See the Da Vinci Code. Uh, for others, he's an enemy that needs to be squashed. See any dictator or ruler of a totalitarian regime. For others, he was a nice guy, but certainly wasn't God and had some awesome things to say and seminal things to say about liberation. See many Western secularists. And for others, he makes for a clever pun on a t-shirt. And so as we look at this passage, what we see is a couple groups begin to argue about who is Jesus and what did he come to do. And then Jesus himself says, here's what I've come to do. So let's just, let's look at that. Okay, so first, number one, we'll see who do the Pharisees say that Jesus is? Number two, who does Jesus say that he is? And then number three, how do we respond? What are some applications for our lives? Okay, so first, what do the Pharisees say about who he is? Number two, what does Jesus say about himself? And number three, how do we apply this uh, to our lives? 21st century context. All right, so first number one, uh, who do the Pharisees say Jesus is? So especially those for those who are newer to ground ourselves a bit in the narrative— Jesus begins himself, begins his ministry with teaching. 
and he teaches as one who has authority. And so he claims to be God. He claims to be the divine judge in front of whom everyone will have to give an account at the end of their life. In the, in the Sermon on the Mount, he claims to have designed reality in such a way that when you don't live in relationships, in the way that he has designed relationships to happen, you and other people won't have life. So that's Matthew 5 through 7. And now in Matthew 8 through 12, he moves from teaching as one with authority, and now he begins to live as one with authority. So he raises the dead to life. He raises paralytics to their feet. He forgives sins. He does things that only God can do. And as always happens with a magnetic or well-spoken individual, we have people who are repelled by Jesus and people who are attracted to Jesus. And so now we have these two groups collide and enter our scene. So in verse 22, a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, that's Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So, he heals a blind and mute man, and the common people say, can this be the son of David? The son of David was a divine king prophesied about in the Old Testament scriptures, beginning in 2 Samuel 7, and his role would be to come and end all suffering. So this is a a flicker of faith amid the lay people, and they're seeing a guy, he heals a blind and mute man, so they're like, oh, that looks like the guy. So they're showing faith, and then the Pharisees, who are the power brokers and religious leaders of the day, they swoop in and they snuff out this little flicker of faith by saying it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Uh, Beelzebul, in short, is a way to say Satan. So essentially saying, you know, it's by Satan that Jesus cast out demons. Now, note what the Pharisees are doing. They're not claiming that what Jesus is doing isn't real. They can't deny his power, so they do what many politicians and Twitter warriors, or maybe now it's thread warriors, if you guys have downloaded that, I don't know. Okay, do when you're losing an argument, you resort to ad hominem and name-calling. So like, uh, no, this guy, he can't be the divine king. He can't be one of the good guys. The only reason he can do magic tricks is because he must be in league with Satan. And in essence, what they're saying is Jesus isn't who he says he is. And it's amazing that, as Pastor Josh Porter put it, this same kind of identity redirection takes place today. So you hear things like, Jesus was a incredible teacher of love, but he wasn't God. And as fundamentalist as it may sound for me to say this, when I hear something to the effect of, yes, Jesus was a compelling philosopher, but nothing more, what I hear is it's only by Satan, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons, right? Because the heart of the accusation is the same, that Jesus isn't who he says he is. And this is an accusation of utmost severity, not just for the speaker, but for those who are listening to them. And let's pause here. So first to be clear, it's one thing to be a Christian and wrestle with doubt about who Jesus is. It's another to be, to not be a Christian and to have honest questions and objections about who Jesus is. We saw a couple months ago, right, John the Baptist, who was doubting, and because of how God welcomes doubters, our church welcomes doubters as well. But there's a difference between that more humble posture of seeking and an obstinate defiance where you refuse to take Jesus at his word and then lead other people astray by your words. 
So when I hear a university professor or a celebrity or a self-professed, free-thinking, spiritualist, or ex-evangelical who wisened up and left orthodoxy in the church and started a podcast, and now with a wink and a smile, says something to the effect of, great teacher, yes. God, the need for a cross, no. I think, yikes. Because just like the Pharisees, they're trying to drain the faith from their hearer and cut, them, cut the hearer off from the only source of life that's to be found. And that's why Jesus says here, we're not going to spend too much time on the second paragraph to treason him by his fruit. But in context here, where he says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. This is in context of the Pharisees trying to convince other people that Jesus isn't who he says he is. So he says, there's going to be a particular kind of judgment for those who intentionally, willfully steal other, steer people away from Jesus. Okay, so this is number one. Who do the Pharisees say Jesus is? They say he's not who he says he is. Okay, so who does he say that he is? Point two. And here we have one of the most thrilling quotations I think Jesus gives in the entire scriptures. And he gives this metaphor uh, in, uh, where is it here? Yeah, verse 29. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. So remember, this is in the context of driving out a demon, and so Jesus likens the world to a house or a castle, and this castle is kept and defended by an evil prince, a warlord known as Satan, and Satan has a number of goods in his house that he's trying to protect. And so essentially what Jesus is getting at is the reality of the unseen world and how Satan exerts influence on our lives, and it's actually isn't it amazing how many times now we've seen talk of demons in the unseen world in Matthew? There's one reason why I like just going through the book of the Bible, because it forces me to talk about something, and admittedly I don't think about often enough. So as we think about Satan and demons, there are certainly those who overstress the presence of Satan. So some years ago, I was in a coffee house, and there was a customer who, for whatever reason, was convinced that the barista was possessed by a demon. And he tried to exercise the demon right there. And I could be wrong. I'm pretty sure the barista wasn't possessed, okay? And so we have those individuals. But I, for most of us in the West, we're more prone to the opposite error of underappreciating the role of Satan. And Jesus, as he's saying right here, he understands his mission to be a, one of cosmic warfare. And then in First John chapter 3, one of Jesus' closest friends and disciples says in verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, so as we think about how does Satan work, uh, first on a grand level, everything wrong with our world has its roots in the devil. Because the devil was the first rebel who in Genesis 3 enticed humanity to sever the bond of trust we had with God. And then we were off to the races, paradise lost, paradise is lost in Genesis chapter 3, and now we have the world in tatters. So actually evil begins not with humans, but with Satan himself. But number two, and getting more practical and specific to how we think about how Satan works today, is the main way that Satan seems to work in systems and in individuals is through lies. Lies. And we see this in a number of places. I mean, he does it in Genesis 3, but Jesus states this explicitly in John chapter 8 when he's talking to the Pharisees, and he says in verse 44, you are of your father the devil, 
and your will is to and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Speaking of Satan, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, it's just who he is. For he is a liar and the father of lies. You guys ever think about the the power of a lie? If you've lived in a home or you live in a home with a liar, you, you know the pain of that. Or think about Germany in the 30s and 40s, a lie about race and nationalism that led to thousands of otherwise reasonable and intelligent people aiding the Holocaust and throwing the world into chaos. Or closer to home, In America, the lie of consumerism, consumption, I need more. I need more money. I must upgrade my house. I need better experiences, right? Leading to widespread comparison, discontent, envy, anxiety, corporations underpaying their workers, employing slave and child labor to feed our appetite for more. Or just as dangerous, the lies we tell ourselves, this is, what, this is what was really hitting me this week, the lies we tell ourselves in our own heads. Nothing good ever happens to me, so why should I even try? My best days are behind me. If people really saw me and knew me, they'd be disgusted. It's the grown man whose father ridiculed him and to this day believes that he's only as attractive and worthy as he is successful in his work. It's the woman or the teenage girl scrolling through Instagram believing I'm ugly and unworthy of love. Lies, they wreck our families, our churches, our societies, and they destroy, they destroy our souls. And so, Do you see why Jesus can't just be a teacher? (laughs) Because a teacher or an educator can't deal with the problems in ourselves and our world cemented into us through lies. Human trafficking, child abuse, poverty, mass shootings. All these things stem from lies. And so you, you think an educator can deal with that? And so when Jesus says, I've come as the divine warrior to bind the strong man, I, I love this because he's tapping into the, the deepest narrative structure that human beings have and the deepest longings we have because he says, okay, so Satan has the world in, in his clutches mainly through lies, and so, but I'm more powerful. So I come in and I, I bind him, right? I'm, I'm more powerful than him. I'm the great hero. And I, I plunder his home. So what's he plundering? What's he taking back? What is he taking back? Us. Isn't that incredible? Right? Those who are held captive by his lies and everything that, that flows out of them. And so what Jesus does is when he comes in his life, he begins to bind the devil in his ministry. When he heals the sick and raises the dead and breathes the heavenly air of truth into a world suffocating in lies. And then after showing strength over death, strength over lies, strength over sickness, he shows to the shock of his friends and to the shock of Satan 
shows the ultimate strength when he himself is now bound willingly, right? As he is bound to a cross and he's plundered and they take his clothes from him, right? And, and he dies for your sin, for my sin, and as Colossians 2 puts it, to disarm the devil. And then when he rises from the dead, he cements the devil's defeat. And so now it's a, the cross is a little bit like D-Day, right? Where he's coming, he's declared victory, but the war hasn't, he, Satan's crippled, but now he's in a, in a lot of ways, he's more dangerous because he's injured and he knows his imminent defeat is coming. But he is defeated. And so who is Jesus? He is God, become man, come to bind Satan and free us, free you from death in the future and renew the world. But today also to free you from the lie most of all, the lie that life is better when you live for yourself rather than the one who loved you and gave himself for you. That's who Jesus is. Okay, so we see who Jesus is, and now as we think about applications for our lives, how do we flush some of these things out? Step one, and Jesus says as much here, is to, the first step is to follow Jesus. Okay, whether it's for the first time or for the thousandth time. And here he gives this statement in verse 31. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. When you've heard that in the scripture, you may have been thinking, okay, this is the only verse I want to hear explained today. And in short, what's going on? Notice that Jesus begins with the wideness of God's mercy. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. So God wants to heal and redeem the person abused, and victimized, but he also wants to heal and redeem the abuser and the victimizer. His compassion and forgiveness is that baffling. So we see the wideness of God's mercy, but then he says there's one particular sin that can't be forgiven, and that's the blasphemy against the Spirit or slander against the Spirit. So the most succinct way to probably understand this is think about the main ministry of the Holy Spirit is to honor Jesus and to communicate the fact that Jesus is not just a teacher, but he's the mighty one, God himself, come to liberate us from Satan's sin and death. And so when you slander the Spirit or resist the Spirit, essentially what you're saying is, I refuse to believe this is who Jesus is, and I don't want his forgiveness. I don't have, whether it's, I just don't think there's enough evidence for Jesus, or I just don't think I need to be forgiven for something. And so the reason why you're not forgiven isn't because God can't forgive you. It's because you don't want to be. And so the urging of Jesus is to turn and to repent, which means to turn and to just ask for forgiveness for all the ways that you contribute to the self-centeredness and suffering in the world and your indifference toward God, and he loves to come into your life and give you life full and free. So that's number one, is to, to follow Jesus. And number two, once you begin to follow Jesus, now let's think about applying this to our lives, you know, if, if you're a believer in your life and the lives of other people. So in First John chapter 5, there's this, Great place toward the end where John writes that if you belong to Jesus, the evil one can't touch you, or more literally, the evil one can't grab you. And here, grabbing uh, uh, an illustration from Tim Keller, although I've read the books, if you've read Harry Potter, and I think it's in the Sorcerer's Stone, what happens at the end of the book? The evil one shows up. And I think it's some combination, sorry, Harry Potter fans, it's some combination of Quill and 
Voldemort, right? And what happens? They, they keep trying to attack Harry, and they can't touch Harry. So Harry asks Dumbledore, you know, what happened? And Dumbledore essentially tells him, because your mother sacrificially gave herself for you in love, evil can't touch you. You see, like, we have no deeper narrative than the cross to communicate the most beautiful stories. Because you've been saved by love, now evil can't touch you. And it's the same for you. If you've been bought by Jesus and united to Jesus, the evil one can't actually touch you. And so a way to to apply this to yourself, this is just something I've been doing in my own life, is to, in my prayer life, I've started to name the lies that I believe. And there, there are many, many, many more than I care to admit about myself, about God, about other people, about his character, what I think God's going to do, what he's doing in me. And I simply just begin to tell God, I believe this about myself. I believe this about you. And they hurt to say out loud. And then I find promises in scripture where God assures me that lie isn't, isn't true. I rely on other people in the church to assure me that these things aren't true. And so that is one way, you know, our theme this year is multiply with Jesus, learning to commune with God regularly. As I encourage you guys in your, in your devotions or as you're driving, whenever you like to pray, just start thinking, what are these lies I believe about myself and God? Name them and then ask God to free you from the, these lies that you believe. It's really powerful. Number two, as we think about moving out toward other people, let's think about our words. And so there's the, the section in the end where Jesus is saying to be very, very careful with your words. And the whole good tree, bad tree thing, it's, it's about conversion, right? That we, our hearts need to be, be made new from the inside. That creates the good tree, which bears good fruit. And so as we think about the devil mainly using lies, we should be so careful of careless speech, right? Half-truths, uh, little lies intended to deceive, or even words that are intended to cut down, whether there are political enemies, whether there are people in our home. So just as you begin to speak, and for me often it's not even the words that I say out loud, but it's the words that I think in my head toward other people. Just in, in your house, in your work, if you communicate on the internet, hopefully not too much, you, are your words there to build up and bring in the kingdom of God, or are they, are they there representing the kingdom of Satan, who's a liar? Okay, so we need to be so mindful of our words. Are we building up or are we deceiving and tearing down? And then number three, our actions. So notice how when Jesus heals this man, he's demon-oppressed and he is blind and mute. When he gives this man the ability to speak, it's more than just giving him the ability to speak. And I thought about this because in Kenya, I went mute for three days and my throat got really sore. And what I noticed is, you know, everyone would try to be kind to me initially, but then when I keep talking like that, you know, eventually they just start to step away because, like, what do you, especially with a guy who doesn't know sign language, because what do you do with a guy who can't say anything? And so I, this isn't a pity party for Steve, but just I'd often find myself, you know, alone. I'm like, oh, man, this, even as an introvert, this kind of stinks. And, you know, once I began to speak again, it was like I got belonging back and community back. And so Jesus, it isn't just he gives this man the ability to, to speak, but he reminds him through other people that God tells him he's worthy of love. And so what are ways that we can remind other people through giving them belonging that they're worthy of love? And I saw this uh, just as an illustration when, when I was in Kenya, and I was, I was working with this organization, Renewal Project Africa, or RPA, and on RPA's leadership team, 
there is a photographer, and his name is Rico, and you can bring up the picture. And he is, uh, he's there in the green shirt right there. And so this is, and we're in one of the village churches. And I don't have many photos of him because he was the photographer. So that's him over there in the green shirt. And on one of the days, we're hanging out with a small group of us, and someone asked him, you know, so how did you end up serving with RP as a photographer? And he says, yeah, well, when I was a little boy, I lived with my granddad, who was the man of the house. And my granddad was a, he was a severe man. And he was a very successful businessman and continued to tell me every day, if you're not as successful as me, you're nothing. And, but Rico, he didn't like numbers. He didn't like business. He liked art and design and photography. And when his granddad learned this, he, he began to beat him. And as he'd beat him, he'd tell him, you're nothing. You're never going to amount to anything. And Rico said, there came a day when I was a teenager when I just couldn't take it anymore, and so I decided to take my own life. And he said, when I was about to go through with it, I just, I didn't even know if I believed in God, but I just threw out a prayer. And I said, you know, God, if you're there, I need something because I just can't keep living like this. And right away his phone rings. And it was a family member of his who's a Christian. She says, hey, Rico, it's been a while. And he's like, yeah, it's been a while. And she said, hey, I just, maybe something's up. I don't know, but I want you to come visit me. She lived in another town. So he goes, okay, what the heck? So he packs up a backpack, drives to visit her, and she takes him to church. And he didn't really want to go, but he's like, whatever, you know, I'm, I'm here. So he gets to church, and the uh, production lead, so the people who sit back there, he said, hey, what's your name, Rico? Okay, nice to meet you. Hey, we need some help here at the computer, so just can you take a seat at this, at this chair, and these are the slides. And what I want you to do is when the worship team gets to the last line on the screen, just push this button and keep doing that until the sermon starts. <laughs> like, these are instructions that you often hear in Kenya. <laughs> and you're like, can you do that? He's like, yeah, I think so. So he sits down, and he just starts to push the button. And he says, about halfway in, something clicked, and I begin to feel home. And it's like, it's everything coming together. It's media. It's music. But most importantly, it's a church who helped him see he had something to contribute and that he was there to be loved. And he kept coming back and he ended up coming to faith in Jesus and following him. And then one thing led to the next and then RPA approached him and they said, hey, we need to hire a full-time photographer. And he's like, I can do this for a living? And so now he spends his days taking pictures of the kingdom of God going forward in Africa. And what happened here? Rico was a man who believed the lie that he was worthless and Jesus, working through a person and then a church, told him, you don't have to believe that anymore. And there are, there's each person in your home, in your job, in your neighborhood is believing some kind of lie about themselves or God or both. And when you do something as simple as not ignoring them, maybe they're really hard to love. When we're captivated by lies, we're hard to love. By not ignoring them, by showing them compassion, even if they haven't showed you any in kind. 
you bring the kingdom of God to bear on their life. And most importantly, you bring the king of the kingdom to bear. The one who gives them life to the fullest and truth to live by. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you sent your son Jesus to free us from ourselves and to free us from an enemy who...